the conversation you're about to listen to was recorded on Tuesday evening, September 1st. on this discussion are three regular members of the panel. You know them all. Writer and math teacher Tim Etherington, campaign manager and consultant Lauren Hunter, and editor and podcaster Donald Fraser. So thanks to all of you for joining me uh, online today. Now, the other, other members of the panel had a go just last night talking about the conservative leadership race, and we talked about the numbers and the ins and outs and who won which ballot and why and so on and the difference between the popular vote and the points allocated. So now Aaron, we have Aaron O'Toole, and he's been leader now for eight days or so. What are, are your collective takes on him? You heard what our, our colleague said last night. Where is O'Toole? And what do we think he's going to do? Well, he's going to run away from his, his nomination campaign as fast as he can, quite obviously. You know, uh, right. he, he's been getting some good press because he came out, you know, in favor of pro-choice, you know, reproductive rights. And that was all very good, although he did secure the nomination by getting the backing of some very strong anti-abortion groups. So and this speaks to a larger issue with, with O'Toole is that no one really knows who he is. And he hasn't given us many clues. You know, those, those on the inside, those who have met him, it's, a lot of people have very positive impressions of him right. as a sort of one-on-one retail politician, though it should be noted that Andrew Scheer was also regarded that way, that he was much better in a room one-on-one than he was on television. So O'Toole's challenge is going to be, who the heck is he? And there was a, a poll that just came out from Pew in the last couple of days about favorabilities uh, of Aaron O'Toole. And yeah, I think he was net too positive, but both his positive and negative were in the 20s. Over 50% of the respondents said they had no strong impression of him one way or the other. So the terrain for the next couple of months is going to be defining Aaron O'Toole. And that, so we'll see what happens. Clearly he's making a, an opportunity at it, but man, he left a long trail of evidence with his backing. You know, he was backed by Ontario or Canada Proud. Jeff Ballingall, you know, ran his campaign. He his his take Canada back really, really, really did not land well with a lot of people. So he's going to be scrambling to the center now. And it's going to be up to the liberals to see if they can define him otherwise, I suppose. Well, I'd love to step right in there, Tim. And this is Lawrence. I'll I'll take a crack at defining Aaron O'Toole. And uh, I will say, you know, I think we get the uh, benefit here of commenting on what our colleagues had to say last night. Uh, and perhaps the order will reverse later and they'll get to do the same to us. But I did hear a couple of times, and Tim, you referenced that Aaron O'Toole is a nice guy, right? That he's very personable and, and amicable. And I just, it struck me because I don't know how many times in politics I've heard a woman politician described as a nice woman or a nice gal. And I think that's the... <laughs> The term, uh, you know, he's a nice guy is a huge rug that a lot of stuff can be swept under. And if, you know, I I already sort of broke down the ballot, but Aaron O'Toole owes a lot of this victory to the social conservative wing in the Conservative Party of Canada. And 
those folks are crafty and, and coordinated and have been strategically getting involved in leadership races and in riding associations and pushing a more mm -hmm. socially conservative agenda and making sure that they're electing and nominating candidates to carry that forward. And I think it's a, a bigger question than just the leadership of Aaron O'Toole. In some ways, it's really the existential question for the Conservative Party of Canada as a whole. And, and where do they sit? And can there be a leader like Stephen Harper, who managed to hold all these disparate parts together while not showing such a hand to the social conservatives. But, you know, it was pretty clear that the, the pro-life crowd uh, did back him on the final ballot. If you look at how he did in Quebec, that was really driven, I'm to understand, from a piece in the star by uh, some of his moves towards loosening up restrictions on firearms. In fact, he has committed to rolling back protections that were implemented by Mulroney after the Montreal massacre. You know, he's committed to defund the CBC, to scrap the price on pollution, restore conscience rights to physicians so they don't even have to refer people uh, who are seeking an abortion to, to another clinic or physician who would do it. So the nice guy rug uh, has a lot of uh, dirty stuff underneath it. And I think that's what I, I hope Canadians see him for, for who he is. So is he, is he a, a SOCON candidate, a, a, a social conservative, or is he masquerade, is he a centrist masquerading as that for purposes of getting elected leader? Well, take a look. This is a fractured, a fractured party with a, a fractured base right now. And so before, before I answer that question, uh, let's, let's take a look at how they responded. So, uh, the morning after, because this thing, this thing didn't, you know, end until until the wee wee hours. To quote Bruce Springsteen, early in the morning, uh, eight o'clock, eight thirty. If you were to jump on, if you jumped on social media, these are people who are sitting at their desks. These are these are white collar conservatives, uh, and and they were bemoaning uh, what happened the night before. They they saw this as as a huge problem uh, for the electability uh, of their party. By the time 11 o'clock rolls around, and you have you have a changing of the guard, who's uh, who's really alive and and active on social media, particularly on Twitter. By then, the Take Canada Back movement was was in was in full swing. So you've got you've got a party divided. There there is there's an intelligentsia. There's there's um there's a a more socially liberal part of the party that that looks at Aaron O'Toole as being problematic. And then there are then there are the rest, particularly out west, who we're seeing this as, as a great great thing. So uh, the party's got to figure out what direction they want to go in before before they they really get any traction on this one. And we don't know which Aaron O'Toole we're going to get. I suspect it's going to be the 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 socially conservative one. The background we can go through the shopping list that Lauren just gave, uh, and it doesn't wow. instill confidence on on someone who's going to be moderate at any in any way. Okay, well. Let's uh, broaden the context here. O'Toole is going to be, of course, uh, when Parliament resumes, the end of September, in the thick of it. But, of course, he, like every other politician in Canada, will be dealing with the reset. Now, what does the reset mean? What are, why are we using that term? And what are its perils and potentials? What could the Liberals do with this? Tim? Oh, I, was, uh, I was actually looking to Lauren there because I thought maybe she could give us a more fulsome explanation of it. I, I the reason being that I see I, I see it more from I, I do see it more from a strategic point of view. You know, I see it that um, it, it's a very defensible and legitimate turn of events uh, 
for the Trudeau government to do this, saying they need a new speech from the throne. This is a, a very reasonable thing for them to do. It's, of course, very convenient at the same time, but that's the way politics work. And I think we do as a nation need to take a look and take stock of, OK, so we've responded to this crisis. What do we do now? We've piled up a mountain of debt and, uh, you know, we can go off on that digression. We want to discuss that. But I think everyone understands why we did. The nature of work has changed. Uh, the threat of the disease is still there. So, you know, we need to start again. We need to look at the reality now and figure out what we're, we're going to do next. I mean, proroguing is, is not a nefarious act. It, it, uh, it can be in a lot of situations. Uh, I want to be angry at Justin Trudeau about this, but I can't find it in me to do so. <laughs> when, when, when we had the speech from the throne in 2019, it was before COVID had hit the shores of Canada. Uh, it, was, it was a lifetime ago uh, in the span yes. of all. Yes. Um, and it, it makes sense. It wipes the slate clean because he's going to be looking at, and I, I want to get into what he might be bringing up in, in the speech from the throne, because, or what he's not going to bring up from the speech from the throne. Uh, but this is this is, <laughs> and it's funny because the 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 opposition, the the conservative party in particular, has a very very short list, uh, short memory when it comes to to proroguing, uh, and also when it comes to scandals. So they're howling about this the prorogation of of, of of Parliament, despite the fact that this is calling it's, it, it ends up calling for a confidence vote. Like this, this is Trudeau saying, "Take me down, I dare you." You know, the, I'm giving you the wherewithal to do so. Unlike Harper, who who actually did it to avoid a confidence vote. In fact, he liked proroguing so much he did it three times, uh, including wants to watch the Olympics. So, like, really, the conservatives <laughs> have a short memory when it comes to prorogation of, of, of politics. And then they're, they're saying that the reason why he's doing this is because of the Wee scandal. And I, I, I think the Wee scandal is a scandal light in comparison. And, and yes, we, we talked about that. Yeah. Well, they, they just they just voted in their, their new leader last week. And the leader that 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 they're replacing is mired in scandals. Uh, so, I mean, it, it makes no sense with with the personal gain and, and the number of times that she or stepped over the line, whether it's for personal gain, uh, whether it was for electoral gain, uh, whether it was for party gain, whether it was just plain cheating is, is astounding. And, and Trudeau. When it comes to when it comes to scandals, and, and Trudeau's had some doozies, the we is kind of weak. Uh, a thing <laughs> not the profit organization in, in an incorrect way. And yes, there was personal gain by the Trudeaus, but really, it, when it comes to when it comes to scandals, this is one of the weakest ones against Trudeau. Yeah, yeah. So, Lauren. Um, well, not surprisingly, I'll agree with both of you in terms of the <laughs> use of prorogation as a, a perfectly reasonable parliamentary tool. And in fact, I was going back and I did a little research to see if there was some stats on how often parliament has been prorogued in the past. And if you go way back, it was something that happened every session, in fact, that would prorogue parliament mostly so that members had time to travel back to their ridings so they could do their constituency work. And so I think uh, it's definitely a, a tool in the parliamentary uh, toolbox. Uh, I know it certainly has been around the fact that that means the committees stop working. And uh, there was multiple committees investigating We Charity at four. Donald uh, signs to me. Yeah. Yes. Um, you know, as I think it was Sean mentioned on the earlier show, the committees are all opposition controlled at the moment. So there's absolutely nothing stopping any of those committees from starting 
back up almost exactly where they left off once we return from uh, prorogation, once Parliament kicks off. So if the opposition parties still feel that there's things to dig out and they want to still be calling witnesses and continuing to explore, they can do that. You know, has the wind been brought out of their sails? Perhaps. But I think, as Donald said, there's there's such a such a scandal light in so many ways. And really, it does give the government the opportunity to to set a new agenda. And I think I, I do see it as less of a dare from Trudeau, you know, force an election, just watch me, and, and versus more of an attempt to to find out where the chips are going to lie. You know, if we're really if a recovery agenda and we're serious about putting the country back on track when it comes to uh, health and safety and economic, etc., then they need to know that the opposition parties, where they're going to stand, what are the issues they're going to agree with, where do they disagree, where can we find common ground, because I really do think that the appetite uh, among Canadians for a federal election right now is negligible. I mean, I certainly don't have an appetite to go back to a campaign right. less than a right. year after we just did one, but we need to know where they're standing so that we can perhaps cut down on some of the bluster and the outrage uh, about where the recovery is going and, and, you know, let's get down to brass tacks. So I have read that uh, Trudeau is consulting more broadly within caucus on where the speech from the throne is going to go and what that package is going to look like, which is good to hear. And that has been a criticism of him in the past. And there are hints that he will consult with the opposition parties as well. And I think he would be smart to do so if, if he's legitimately looking to, for, to put forward a recovery package that'll move the country forward. Uh, then talking to the opposition parties and finding out where that agreement is, is a smart move. I want to, I want to live in an optimistic world where looking ahead, we don't see it seem more outrage. I, I, I think, yeah, I'm thinking the same thing. I'd actually like comment on like seems that the this is a ginned up scandal uh you know every every few months and, and and there's a reason for that it's not the it's not the you know anything to do with the deficiencies of the opposition parties there's two main reasons for that one is that the way that uh, the media landscape now you know yes. everything happens so quickly to break through that you need something to spike something to hit really hard and nothing hits harder than government corruption and and the we issue is a classic example it was a poorly designed badly rolled out program Oh, yeah. And the Liberals deserve to take a lot of hits for that. But the opposition turned it up to 11 and wanted to make this all about insider dealings and that. And it, I think that turned a lot of people off when there was some legitimate yeah. criticism for the way we happen. But the other reason this happens isn't, I mean, that's the same in democracy all across the world. But look at the Canadian political landscape. The Conservatives own Alberta and Saskatchewan. The Liberals own the Maritimes. Quebec, and, Quebec is divided between the Bloc and the Liberals. And the rest of urban Canada is the Liberals or the NDP. Really, only Manitoba and British Columbia are competitive provinces in terms of who's going to win some seats. So it's kind of baked in right now that the Liberals win the most seats unless something gives, right? If it gives right. a bit to them, they win a majority. If it gives a little bit away from them, they have a smaller minority. So to break that down, you need some cataclysmic event. So, you know, the opposition parties right now are like a baseball player coming up to the plate and they're trying to swing for the fence every single time. One thing is they connect, but otherwise they're looking goofy, you know, oh. swinging for air. And it's caused certain, certain politicians who had rather good reputations, like Charlie Angle, Angus, totally mm -hmm. be clown himself on the national stage and ruin his reputation.
Yeah, I mean, the, the throwing around of terms such as Trudeau is a socialist. I mean, the, the radical left is taking over our government. I mean, I, I have voted center left all my my life. I don't know any radical leftists. I don't. I mean, maybe there were a few at Concordia in Montreal way back when, or at U of T back in the seventies, but they weren't very radical, and there weren't very many of them. And and yet, this, this jargon is being bounced around social media as if, of course, it's reality, which is far and from it. I, I, I know Don't. a lot of people on the radical left, and, and, and Trudeau is definitely not one of them. Uh, yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> now, another name that we've heard a lot about uh, quite recently, of course, is uh, Christian Freeland. Her, her, her star continues to rise, and you know, she's she's written many books. She's got. I, I I couldn't get over the criticism, of course, gender based, for her lack of business acumen when she's been the managing editor of the Financial Post. Now, someone in that job knows a little bit about business, and her books on economics, etc. Uh, so, w- where will she rise to, and what lies ahead for her? Well, I just let me touch on that in terms of you know the credentialism that was going around the internet very quickly. You know, you mentioned a couple of her past positions and things she's done, but, you know, let's not forget she was also the lead negotiator for the new NAFTA. You know, what what does it take to be finance minister, right? What is it that we're looking for? And I would argue that for the Trudeau government, which has talked a lot about uh, strengthening the middle class and those working hard to join it, looking at income inequality, that actually having a base street... uh, finance minister is maybe not the kind of credentials that they're right. looking for or they need in this time. You know, it's good to play nicely with the businesses on Bay Street for sure, but she's got excellent judgment and ability to develop constructive relationships with politicians of all stripes. She and Doug Ford seem to have an impeccable relationship. She refers to him as her therapist because they talk so much. And so, you know, there's someone who I, I never thought we would see having any kind of constructive relationship with any member of the Trudeau government, let alone Christian Freeland. So I think that she is absolutely perfectly qualified to be finance minister. And I'm really looking forward to seeing how she'll put her stamp on this budget and, and on the speech from the throne that'll come before it. Now, of course, the speculation has been, uh, well, let's put it this way, alive and well, uh, is she an ex-prime minister? I mean, could we, is she a liability for Trudeau? That that depends on on Trudeau. It really does. No one enters federal politics without hope someday they become prime minister. You know, you don't get the cabinet and everyone wants the top job. Right. They're going to go for it. And it speaks to a leader whether they can handle and, and, and deal with a strong personality and a very qualified person under them. And uh, I, I have no inside knowledge whether or not, but it, it shouldn't be something that shouldn't be something that 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 is a, a criticism of her, that she has the potential to be a prime minister. Neither should it be a criticism of Trudeau unless he can't uh-huh. he can't deal with it very well. I, one thing I want to add to what Lauren said is that it isn't just that Christopher Phelan, you know, has, has written a lot about economics. As Lauren points out, she negotiated free trade. She was one of the uh, voices internationally who really started calling attention to the wage gap in Western mm-hmm. democracies and Western mm-hmm. economies. Um, yes. Her, and now I, I apologize because I haven't read it. I just know the name of her book, Plutocrats. But I, but that's what first caught my eye about her when sure. she first ran for federal politics. She said that there is a structural, you know, 
error or a flaw right now in Western economies in that the rich are getting richer and the poor are getting poorer. And is that, if that gap keeps growing, then we, we are going to, we're going to kill the golden goose. You know, we're going to kill the middle class. And so she comes to this job with a coherent, well thought out, well tested economic uh, position. Some will disagree with it, some won't. But it isn't something that, you know, it isn't just that she's getting rewarded for being so competent that she's now getting this job. It actually is a very good fit for her. And, you know, we've all mentioned it, but the, the blatant misogyny of the pundit class mm-hmm. missing her. Um, most fine, no, not try, John Iveson, the National Post, for God's sake, horrible. And uh, yeah. the, uh, the um, most finance ministers were lawyers as if that's a good qualification. We had a millionaire as our finance minister, and the number one criticism people gave to him was that he was some kind of plutocrat who was out of touch with the common man. Right. So given, given the let's say, the strengths that the, the Freeland brings to her position, if we can look into the crystal ball, not years away, but several months away, what are the policy options that the Liberals could entertain. For example, are we going to see something like a universal basic income? Are, are we going to see a, a move to, let's say, more social justice? Uh, I hate to say it. Uh, well, I, I shouldn't say I hate to say it. Uh, I fear saying it because I want it to happen. Uh, are we going to see a move, a subtle move to the left in policy? I think we're looking at the equivalent of, of a wartime speech from the throne. I, I think that we're, we're, going to be, we're going to be dialed into the pandemic crisis and the economic crisis that is accompanying it. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, the first the first round was Trudeau handing out money, and, and this can't this can't happen forever. You know, coffers right. are, are not bottomless. Uh, there will also be howls of, of protest from the other side of the house. So I, I think what's going to happen is a careful balancing act of how we can continue to respond to COVID and post-COVID and do so in a way that is economically feasible and sustainable. Uh, The last uh, speech from the throne had five themes, uh, climate change, strengthening of the middle class, uh, reconciliation, healthcare, and and, and Canada's overall positioning in in the world. Uh, I I think we're going to see something that is probably not going to look like that, uh, or so I, I expect. I think it's going to be stripped down. I think it's going to be more lean in content. And this scares me because, yes, we're looking at the the, the massive, massive toll that, that COVID is doing, and, and that doesn't hold a candle to what we're going to be looking at a decade from now, 20 years from now, when it comes to the impact of global climate change. And, uh, and I, I, I'm hoping I'm wrong, but I, I see this very much being a pandemic speech from the throne. Donald, in terms of it being a a pandemic speech from the throne, certainly what I've heard and what seems to be telegraphing, the party seems to be telegraphing, is that this will be a big and bold speech from the throne. And what that says to me and what I'm hoping for is some of the bigger, bolder policies, uh, like a basic income guarantee, like full decarbonization of the economy, Some of those big ideas that there's, you know, there's been some moves towards and some testing and some pilot projects and money here and there. You know, this this really never mind what parties in power or what what country we're in. This is a historic opportunity to do things in a completely different way than we've done them before. 
because if not now, when? And I mean, the whole world is, and particularly Western nations, are going to be struggling with the costs of this. And I think there's a whole international conversation that needs to be happening among G20 leaders and others about uh, what international monetary policy is going to look like going forward. But, and, you know, I don't necessarily mean just open the spending taps, but let's have a fundamental look at the way we run this country and and what's important and what's not important. And I do think that climate change is right there. I mean, the new minister of finance mentioned that, I think, right on our first day that the recovery had to be a green recovery, had to be inclusive and had to focus on jobs. So, I mean, there is a huge opportunity for job creation, not necessarily in the sectors that have been hardest hit by the pandemic. Let's be clear, because that's been women and service sectors and healthcare uh, that have been impacted very heavily. But, you know, if you're looking for stimulation and job creation, especially in the oil patch, Let's talk about greening the economy and decarbonization. That's I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful. I, and, I, and I'm definitely throwing the, the concept of basic income into into that mix of of a pandemic speech from the throne. Uh, I think that's that's a really good stepping stone to helping lift people out of. Uh, the economic situation that we're in. I am a bit more worried about things like reconciliation. I think, I think this is a, an opportunity for Trudeau to, to, to meet his moment. I'm not saying that triumphantly because 50-50 odds at best. I mean, if I have a disappointment, I'd be generally okay with the Liberal government. I think they've done a lot of good things, but I, I, I think Trudeau has underwhelmed in, in, as a prime minister, at least in regard to the promise that he tantalized us with when he first came in, that he had a strong mandate, that he was bold and he was going to try new things. And he's been rather middling. He's strong on the optics, but otherwise he's tacked a very safe, you know, little bit here, a little bit there kind of course. He has an opportunity right now that's been given him to really meet this moment and mm-hmm. do something, uh, as, the, as the other on this panel pointed out, that not only has a resonance across the country, but actually um, has a real significance internationally. I don't know if he's going to meet that moment, but, you know, it's sitting right there. You know, a, a, a rather mediocre performance as a prime minister over the last six years or so, five years, I guess it's been. He has an opportunity now to reset that beyond any other resetting that's going on. I just I will say sure. that there there have been big, bold things that have happened in the first mandate of the government. I'm certainly someone who never thought I would see the day that Canada legalized marijuana. I certainly didn't believe that we would actually implement a carbon tax uh, or a price on pollution is the friendlier way to say it. I think there actually have been some big strides. But if you go back to the 2015 election, uh, the the platform was like 300 page document um, with so many commitments. In fact, many of them were completed and there was like the Trudeau meter following it before the last election. So quite a bit of progress has been made. But I think in some ways there's a bit of a communications challenge there and setting expectations reasonably, uh, as well as being able to to talk about all of the different things that have happened and all the different ways they uh, were implemented. But I can appreciate your perspective, Tim. All right. Now, we're just about to uh, wind down, so uh, let me uh, just sign off. This is Bill Templeman. 